0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch. Welcome to the POMAPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. This week's program features a book discussion by Devorah Manikin of Hebrew University of Jerusalem about her new book, Regular Soldiers, Irregular War, Violence and Restraint in the Second Intifada. We'll also hear from Jeannie Sowers, of the University of New Hampshire, and Erica Weinthal of Duke University about their article, Humanitarian Challenges and the Targeting of Civilian Infrastructure in the Yemen War. Finally, we'll hear from Joshua Friedman of of Oberlin College uh, about his article, The Recognition Dilemma, Negotiating Identity in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. Thanks for joining our program. This is the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Jeannie Sowers of University of New Hampshire and Erica Weinthal, Duke University. And we're going to talk about their new article in International Affairs, Humanitarian Challenges and the Targeting of Civilian Infrastructure in the Yemen War. Uh, Jeannie, Erica, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: So why don't you uh, start off just by telling us about some of the major contributions of the article and uh, what you think the most important uh, aspects of it are?
1: Sure. Um, I think this project as a whole, which looks not just at Yemen, but other sort of protracted conflicts in the Middle East, is driven by a concern with thinking about human security and not just national or interstate security. And I think for a long time, Erica and I have been working on a sort of series of projects that tries to get at thinking about human well-being in in the situation of conflict. And so with Yemen, we were particularly interested in the construction of a man-made famine. And how that's connected to the targeting of civilian infrastructure since 2010, uh, which of course intensified after 2015. And so the piece really looks at uh, trying to document the spread and scope of civilian infrastructure targeting by different parties to the conflict. And it also tries to then think about what are the implications of that for humanitarian assistance, both at local levels, but also at a sort of more macro scale. So then the piece delves in using uh, interviews. Uh, that we collected over the past few years with humanitarians operating inside Yemen um, about the challenges that they face and and sort of the dynamics of the conflict that are contributing to essentially this man-made famine.
2: So this issue um, is also part of a special issue that has um, recently come out in international affairs. And the entire issue is focused on environmental peace building very broadly trying to identify knowledge gaps in the literature. And the reason this article on Yemen um, and the targeting of infrastructure is part of the special issue is we felt that it was critically important to understand the landscape before peace builders come in and have to begin negotiating a settlement, thinking about reconstruction. So while it may not seem obvious why an article about destruction of infrastructure and the human security impacts is part of a discussion on the past and future of environmental peace building. We see it as an important component because we wanna look at the entire conflict cycle. And the first step in environmental peace building in many ways is undertaking what is often considered a post-conflict environmental assessment. And so our findings in many ways Um, provide the evidence base that the international community can use for designing interventions um, while trying to negotiate a settlement or um, working on reconstruction and rebuilding.
0: So I want to talk uh, about the kind of the scope and magnitude and the nature of the civilian uh, infrastructure targeting, um, which, as we know, is in, in Yemen is, uh, is is widespread and extraordinarily destructive. But before we do that, um, I want to get a little more background on the methods you, that you used. How did you collect the, the information that you used to map out to map it out the way you just described, Erica? Um, you know, what's the database for um, for the project?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. Um, The database actually is an Excel database that we've had a bunch of students working on with a variety of sources of grant funding for the last few years that has a bunch of different search mechanisms and databases built in. So to be honest, when we started working on Yemen, actually there was far fewer sources of external data And as those have become available, we've actually been then importing them and then trying to verify them. And again, trying to eliminate duplicates because once you're working with multiple external data sets, you have that issue as well. So- So what um, were you
0: tracking exactly then?
1: uh, So yeah, actually that's what I was gonna exactly say. So the ones that we're looking at, so first of all, we did our own searches of basically open source uh, English and Arabic with kind of search protocols for the students that covered the major media outlets. that, that we had identified as covering the war. But then we've been much more since about 2015 when more groups got involved in this and then increasingly in 2018 when many more came online, we've been looking at the Civilian Impact Monitoring Project which really is um, coming out of kind of a group of NGOs and UN uh, agencies. We use Air Wars. We use ACLED. Um, they focus, of course, on incidents of violence, but we then go through the incidents that they collect for specific inferences, uh, instances of infrastructure. Um, and I think there's probably, we also use um, OSHA reports when they come out. We use specialized reports like from the Physicians for Human Rights, so for medical targeting. Um, So often the gray literature produced by international NGOs also will have um, sort of examples and so that draws out cumulative effects. But for the kind of discrete incident database, we've essentially done our own searches and then we basically draw on external data sets. And there it's challenging to be honest. There's been a lot of Sort of just challenges about how do you code the actors because they're changing all the time. Um, so, how do you sort of deal with that? How do you deal with our GIS component, which is that we always include a location where we can so that we can generate maps? Um, so, there's a lot of sort of discussion about that internally and with um, geospatial scientists here at UNH who have actually been helping us on kind of the back end. So, it's been a learning curve, I think, for both of us. Uh, so, <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's great. One of the things you point out in the article is um, how difficult it is to get information, um, you know, and intentionally so. Um, so why don't we talk about what you found then, um, and uh, tell us about some of the, the the indicators and some of the patterns of targeting civilian infrastructure which uh, you found in Yemen, and 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 why these matter so much, uh, Erica?
2: Yeah. Sure, I'd be happy to jump in. I also just wanna add one thing to what Genia was noting about the data. Um, this is part of a larger project. And so we're not just looking at Yemen, we're looking at other countries in the Middle East that have experienced conflict. And so we do use different data sets um, for the different countries um, just because different organizations are tracking data differently. And so yeah. UN OSHA has been a very important data source for other parts of the region too. Um, so when we look at the data, um, I mean, Yemen has, has been a very, um, you know, almost, and sometimes it's very depressing to look at the data, um, but we have seen um, trends, um, especially, you know, a shift in certain types of infrastructure that have been targeted since 2010 when we begin collecting the data for Yemen where in the early years of the war, most of the attacks were on energy infrastructure, um, particularly by non-state actors. And this should make sense, just given the dependence on oil resources and revenue for Yemen. And so taking out um, essentially you know, the revenue stream to government, um, government leaders, government, you know, government bureaucracies, And then over time, as the Saudi-led coalition came in, you see a different trend in the targeting of infrastructure. You see much more infrastructure that is really germane to protecting human security. Um, You see attacks on water infrastructure, you see attacks on health infrastructure, on agriculture. Um, I'll just highlight the health and then turn it over to Jeannie to talk more about the agricultural sector. Okay. But it's been striking just the extent to which um, medical facilities and clinics have been targeted, despite um, UN mechanisms, international mechanisms to protect medical workers. Um, there is a system of deconfliction where, you know, humanitarians make available their um, geo-coordinates so that they will be um, protected and um you know, during conflict, but we still see instances where MSF clinics have been attacked in the conflict. And so that's, what's been really striking in our data is the shift in type of infrastructure over time. And also the type, you know, the actors who are targeting the infrastructure. And I'll
0: let Jeannie um, take over here and talk but, a little but on, bit but more on about that real quick. I mean, just to be me- really after it's yeah. 2015, when you see this massive increase uh, in the data, the, the, your, your, um, your figures on that are very, very striking. And you also try and uh, identify where you can, uh, the, who, who carried out the attack. And if I remember correctly, it was two-thirds of them were identifiably from the coalition.
1: Yes, and that yes. both reflects probably maybe the actual pattern of targeting, but it also reflects the import of the external data sets that start coming online in 2017, yeah. 2018, which are specifically targeting airstrikes from the Saudi coalition. So we want to sort of say that we kind of use these, um, it, it, we consider them estimates, right? So we we are realizing that there's tons of things we miss. Mm-hmm. We also, of course, can't account for instances of cooperation, right, on the ground or sort of negotiating access to reconstruct something locally, like we're aware of those kind of deficits. But to sort of pick up what Erica was saying, yes, 67% of the basically 1,941 incidents in the database um, are identified as being from the Saudi coalition. And what's striking about that is that when you look at the agricultural section, almost again, over two thirds of the incidents targeting agriculture are again linked to airstrikes. And this really builds upon the work that Martha Mundy did in her kind of earlier study of targeting the food sector and agricultural productivity in Yemen. And we wanna be very clear that like, we're very aware that access to food is not determined simply by this, this, this is just one piece of a much broader mm-hmm. collapse of the economy, which is of course driving hunger in Yemen. But to just turn to agriculture for a minute, what's really striking is that a lot of those incidents are just uh, airstrikes on a farm or airstrikes on uh, processing companies, fishing boats, flour uh, processing places, poultry farms. So again, the scale of it is quite stunning and it's not clear from the outside how those are related to military targets. Mm -hmm. And then that for us raises this whole question of the indirect effects of of conflict on civilians. In other words, the mortality estimates that are coming out of Yemen, you know, 112,000 people killed in the conflict, that's not even close to the number of people who have actually died in the conflict, because most people are dying of hunger, nutrition, malnourishment, um, and cholera, and and other diseases, um, as well as kind of then the compounded effects of violence, but looking at direct violence, doesn't get at even close to the magnitude of what Yemenis are suffering. And that's what we really wanted to bring out in this article, um, is that this widespread destruction doesn't seem to us have any militarily justifiable necessity. And therefore to us, it seems that they're very clear violations of international humanitarian law which again, really re-emphasizes findings that the UN itself has found when the Human Rights Council had its reports on Yemen by their you know, eminent group of international and regional experts. I think mean, they've done a very good job doc- documenting um, widespread um, human rights abuses. And we only look at this one piece of sort of, are these objects essential to civilian life? Yes. Is there an argument that these are military you know, necessities? It's not clear to us. And as far as the data, I'll just add that um, I would really appreciate it if someone wanted to contest the data and tell us, you're totally wrong. Here's the targeting lists. Uh, but that data, as you know, is not available and no one wants to make it available. So,
0: well, And, and so to bring it back to uh, the special issue theme, um, it's in addition to the direct and indirect uh, uh, civilian costs and, and deaths and, and and stunting and famine and everything else. It also has impact on kind of the long-term prospects of, of reconstruction and building peace. And maybe, maybe as a last uh, thing from the article, maybe we could talk a little bit about that, about kind of the structural effects of this uh, systematic civilian targeting, or civilian infrastructure targeting.
2: One of the things you know, that should be obvious, it's, uh, it's really easy to destroy infrastructure. It's much harder to rebuild. And we've seen this in many of the conflicts that we look at more broadly throughout the Middle East, especially in protracted conflicts. And Yemen increasingly is a, is a protracted conflict um, in that, you know, it's you, humanitarians and those that come in at the end of you know, war, they, they can't really think about reconstruction and building back because there's always this potential of conflict um, restarting. And so, a lot of the decisions are often about how do we patch things up, how do we keep things functioning, and we see this throughout, you know, Iraq. We see it in Gaza. Um, the World Bank has sought to do a damage assessment of the, you know, energy and um, electricity facilities in Yemen, and you know, it's it's these are even more complicated because on the one hand, even if. The infrastructure isn't entirely damaged. There's other um, issues affecting the ability to recon- you know to engage in reconstruction, and that has been you know they just don't have access to fuel. The blockades have taken their toll over time, and it's about gaining access to materials and um, and resources to be transported across borders that are heavily contested, and um, de- there's delays. And so you know this, um, you know this is one case of many cases that we're seeing increasingly in the Middle East. Um, you know, and you know we're at a, we're at a particularly unique moment with a change in administration. And so hopefully, you know, we're we're you know I don't want to say hopeful, but maybe we're a little bit more hopeful that we can see a reset in how we look at Yemen. Um, Jeannie. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I know I don't want to take up much, too much time, but I will just say that I think um, in terms of long term issues that have been created, I think there is a destruction of of the actual environment uh, in, that is actually quite significant and completely under documented. So, Um, Sort of the reports that we've seen indicate that, you know, there is degradation of forests and rangelands as people turn to, of course, cutting wood uh, because they don't have access to fuel. Um, The collapse of water and sanitation systems really has affected not just human health, but also soil. Um, So I think there's a whole host of uh, environmental risks that are out there. And then I think the resilience of populations to things like the locust swarms that are coming in um, and to droughts that are increasing in severity and frequency um, in part due to man-made climate change and then in part due to local fluctuation. Uh, those are real risks and the ability of Yemenis to cope with them, of course, is now severely undermined. So I think that the long-term developmental prospects for these states are actually compromised, not simply by the destruction of infrastructure, but by, again, the knock-on and reverberating effects that, uh, that happen when these systems are, are taken down or collapsed or just degraded over time. And
0: that's one of the most important things in many ways is the interconnection of all these different systems you can't it's not just one sector or this sector it's that's how right. everything fits together um, and uh, it makes the, the cumulative effects of the destruction of Yemeni civilian infrastructure um, just almost uh, mind-boggling in, in terms of its scope and, um, and I, I think you, I think you two also make a really good case as as the rest of the special issue I'm sure does as well uh, simply for think for paying attention to the man made environment and the natural environment as part of uh, thinking about the effects of war which is, as you're right is not always done. Um, we've been speaking with Jeannie Sowers and Erica Weinthal about their article in International Affairs on the targeting of civilian infrastructure in Yemen. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Josh Friedman of Oberlin College. Uh, We're talking about his new article, The Recognition Dilemma, Negotiating Identity in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, which was just published by International Studies Quarterly. Uh, Josh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us about the article. Uh, What uh, motivated you to write it? And what do you think the big contribution is?
3: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, in a broad sense, uh, in this article, I'm interested in where recognition conflicts come from. And when I say recognition conflicts, I mean an international conflict over the nature of an actor's identity, where there's some kind of disconnect between how, you know, in the case of global politics a nation or state sees themselves and self identifies and the way that they are seen and treated by others. And so the international system, of course, is a social structure like any other, Uh, And just as actors who navigate this terrain have unique identities, so the possibility always exists that their particular identities will be denied or ignored uh, by their partners' interaction. So on the one hand, I want to know how these recognition conflicts emerge and become salient in a way that impacts the stuff of international politics. Foreign policy decisions designed to elicit recognition, patterns of violent conflict over recognition, failed cooperation because of misrecognition, and so on. But this is This is the broad question underlying the article. I think, you know, why I'm on this podcast is the more kind of specific focus. uh, And that is my interest in understanding one recognition conflict in particular between Israel and Palestine over the question of Israel's identity as a Jewish state. uh, A conflict which kind of reached its peak during the period of Obama led Israel-Palestine peace talks Mm -hmm. uh, between 2009 and 14. So why this kind of particular recognition conflict. Obviously, Israel-Palestine conflict is a century old. Recognition and its absence has been a a feature of the conflict for its entirety, all the way from Balfour Declaration to the present. So why is this Jewish state recognition conflict something that is interesting and why do I think it's worth studying? And and the answer that I have is uh, really kind of twofold. Number one, this is a relatively new demand. And I think that's important. Israeli leaders have always asked Arab states and Palestinians to legally recognize the state of Israel, and many of them have, uh, including Arafat, uh, on behalf of the Palestinian national movement. But now Palestinians were being asked to go kind of one step further, not only recognize uh, Israel's legal existence as a state, but also recognize what kind of state Israel was, and they were being asked to do this as part of final status negotiations over a two-state solution. Now, over the last kind of half decade of peace talks, this recognition conflict became a constant negotiating stumbling block. Israel would make this demand, Palestinians would, for the most part, vocally reject this demand, and then Israel would claim that the issue represented some kind of core feature of the conflict, thereby shifting the focus from what Israel was doing, right, settlements, the occupation, and so on, to what Palestinians weren't willing to do, recognize and acknowledge the Jewish state. So, my first kind of questions are why is this Jewish state demand suddenly a salient negotiations issue when it never was before? Where did it come from? Why is kind of legal recognition not enough? And why does it matter so much to Israel that they are asking for it? And, you know, why does it matter so much to Palestinians that they are opposed to granting it? That is the kind of first motivation of this paper. The second motivation is that When I say Israel asked Palestinians to recognize them as a Jewish state, as part of final status negotiations, I need to point out not all Israelis uh, were doing this and not all of them supported this negotiations pivot. Over those years, a growing number of Israeli political, military, and media elites began kind of questioning the necessity and wisdom behind this recognition demand. Crucially, this public critique did not come from their own opposition to Israel's Zionist character. Right. it was in fact a function of their deep commitment to Zionism. So I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but an argument that was often seen on the op-ed pages was something to the effect of, you know, we're a Jewish state, our Jewishness does not depend on how Palestinians recognize us, and so who are we to ask them to do so, and who are they to kind of offer it? And so again and again, Israelis would make arguments claiming that recognition seeking was actually deeply harmful, to the state's, you know, identity, authenticity and and self-sufficiency and so on. And so this kind of opposition, it's clear, it doesn't come from some opposition to the identity claim, right? the way we might expect the two from, you know, Palestinian Israelis, you know, or secular post zionist Israelis, and so on and so forth, who might have some actual opposition to this idea of the Jewish state. Um, but actually, the opposition came from a, a response to the practice of recognition of itself. And so if the first motivating question of this case is, why does this demand emerge when it does? The second question is, why do we get this internal contestation? Why do some Israelis actively support and others uh, oppose the kind of idea that recognition from Palestinians is both absent and yet necessary. And so, to wrap this kind of a, to wrap this up, um, I use this puzzling case to inform my broader question: Where do recognition conflicts come from? And to put it simply, I argue in this article that there is agency in the struggle uh, for recognition. I think more than we give give it credit. Um, rather than see these conflicts as things that emerge socially between actors, right? It is recognition mm-hmm. after all. I argue that we need to pay more attention to how these conflicts emerge within actors, um, and this means there's more to the politics of recognition than the fact that actors intrinsically need it and seek it. Right? Uh, for some, I think there's an instrumental value in constituting an idea of recognition's absence, and, and this, I argue, helps explain, you know, Netanyahu's particular embrace of this demand during the Obama-era peace talks. That he actually got something out of, you know, creating this this argument, this discourse that Israel lacked recognition. And then for others, right, in the same polity, recognition uh, is seen as a signal of vulnerability. To ask for recognition is to imply that who I am is somehow dependent on how others see me. And so all of this, of course, plays out uh, over the backdrop of the israeli palestinian conflict, which of course is a conflict over territory, violence, material facts, and otherwise, but uh, also a conflict over identity uh, and narratives. And so that is this kind of article Um, uh, in a summary
0: no it's it's really interesting and one of the things which which i think it very usefully spotlights is the extent to which uh, the actors take this seriously i think there's sometimes a tendency in international relations to downplay the importance of some of these matters like uh identity or norms or the like but clearly the actors themselves do seem to take it very seriously here
3: yeah no i think that's absolutely right and that is that's the kind of Divide with with these things all the time is like well this is just this is just a kind of sideshow right and the real stuff is the material things happening over here and but I think they do take it seriously or at least enough of them realize that it is serious enough that they can kind of play it up right I can't say definitively whether Netanyahu like firmly believes that Palestinians need to recognize Israel as a Jewish state but I think he knows how powerful this discourse is and. What's really interesting to me, and I I can't, I didn't go through enough in the article, but I I hope others kind of do this kind of work, is how the Palestinians respond to this, because um, for the most part, they kind of are vocally opposed to it. They say it undermines the right of return, that it will kind of harm, you know, Palestinians living within Israel and so on and so forth. But there's actually a period where they just kind of dismiss it. Hmm. They're like, yeah, sure, you're a Jewish state. Like, it's not up to us to decide this let's deal with more important matters but the more this kind of discursive stuff happens the more that they are kind of trapped into you know having to admit that it is a big deal and therefore they you know find themselves unwilling to offer this recognition which only kind of further helps you know the israeli viewpoint that this is that this is important because it seems innocuous to just say sure israel is a jewish state um, but the more they become unwilling to do so, I think the more it kind of fed this, fed this cycle.
0: I mean, it's fascinating the way you see the domestic and the international uh, interacting there where you, know, the, the, you know, the Jewish nation state laws is extremely controversial inside of Israel. Um, and then within the negotiations, this demand uh, to be recognized as a Jewish state becomes this major stumbling block. And you do a real nice job in the article of showing how inside of Israel, the, the debates about this um, how they intersected with, the, interacted with those international processes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's kind of a, a component of this that really interests me, and, you know, many others have kind of done work about this, but it's kind of taking these identity conflicts outside of the, sta- the state, in a way, mm-hmm. um, and having them kind of come back in at the same time. Uh, I think, you know, as, as discipline comparative politics and international relations are fusing more and more together, and I think this kind of, domestic international interaction is, is to me an example of that. and I, there's a lot of great work on recognition in international relations out there right now, but it's a lot of it is within this international realm um, and kind of just assumes a, a unity in the domestic sphere. And at least for me, the Israel case is an example of why we need to kind of problematize that a bit more.
0: Now maybe you could say just a little more about that part of it, which is, I mean, what is recognition? Why why does it matter? Uh, what what is uh, what is this thing, and who grants it?
3: Right. I mean that for me, the question of who grants recognition is is the whole puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. Who has the power to grant it? You know, who 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 requires it being given to them? But but simply put, I mean, there's like a long line of from Hegel all the way to the president mm-hmm. of, of political theorists and you know, sociologists and psychologists who essentially argue that our identities do not exist in a vacuum. Uh, whether your identity as a professor or mine, you know, that we can only kind of act in these identities to the degree that others recognize us as such. Uh, and so there is this view that recognition is uh, intrinsically necessary, that states are, are social actors and they require recognition to the same extent that individuals do. Um, And so, but for me, if there is a constant desire for recognition, sure, but we only see recognition conflicts um, arise in kind of certain cases uh, and certain moments. And the argument tends to be that that has something to do with some outside intervention. Right, you know, Britain and France are not recognizing imperial Germany uh, in the late 19th century by according it, you know, certain diplomatic protocol. And so Germany behaves as an actor in need of recognition. Right. Right. Um, But I actually think that actors have more control over whether recognition impacts them or not. that we have more of an ability to kind of situate ourselves within the social sphere. And that is why the Israeli case is interesting to me because I don't think it's self-evident that this Jewish state recognition um, issue had to matter. And it certainly didn't matter. Over over decades of the conflict, Israel was much more interested in a simple kind of legal recognition. They wanted Arab states to essentially say, Israel is a state like any other. And and that was kind of the end of it. Um, And that this shift happened suggests to me that uh, actors do have control uh, over this process. I think there's a spectrum. I think the more vulnerable an actor is, the more they are really dependent on recognition. Obviously, I think Palestinians are much more dependent on kind of recognition from outside, especially for decades, they weren't even acknowledged as a distinct people with a national movement. Of course, that's different now. And so recognition is more powerful in those cases, but I think in, in kind of all cases, um, uh actors kind of play a big role in, in deciding whether recognition matters because there is no you know clear like you know material thing that happens where the moment you are recognized all these other things happen the way like to get legal recognition of a state at least mm-hmm. immediately sees like you know borders u.n membership and, and so on and so forth so i
0: mean obviously it's impossible uh to, to predict the future but based on on your analysis your reading of this process um what what might we expect in future negotiations if they return? Suppose that um, uh, the Palestinian authority said, okay, fine, we'll recognize you as a, as a Jewish state. Does that then smooth a process of negotiations or, do they, or does Netanyahu or whoever replaces them simply come up with another demand, um, mm-hmm. which can then, you know, play a similar kind of um, a role?
3: Yeah. I mean, it depends on really how disingenuous all of this is. If, if it really is about Jewish state recognition, then if Palestinians offer it, that should kind of set this negotiations issue aside. But as you kind of suggest, and I think what concerns me is, um, you know, the kin can always be kicked kind of further down the road because it's well, what does Jewish state recognition look like? I mean, this Mamba Abbas just say it and it's done? I mean, mm-hmm. I think uh, there are kind of a lot of different measures to attach this, and I think it depends a lot about you know, whether Israelis are negotiating good faith or not, and, and how they are using this recognition demand. What what kind of concerns me is I, I always wonder, can recognition be put back in the bottle, right? right. Like a right. Netanyahu spent the last decade saying that recognition, Jewish state recognition matters. Um, if he just drops it, um, is this something that Israelis are willing to accept? I think so, if it just kind of never resolves itself. Um, but that is kind of the, I think for me, the next question is how do you kind of walk back these demands Um, because in some ways I don't know that it's solvable. I don't know that there are things that Palestinians can do to really kind of grant this in a way that, you know, at least this segment of of Israeli leadership would be willing to accept.
0: Well, great. We've been speaking with Josh Friedman of Oberlin College about his new article, The Recognition Dilemma, Negotiating Identity in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, uh, just published in International Studies Quarterly. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. The POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and welcome to our book segment. Today we're joined by Devorah Manikan of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She's the author of the new book, Regular Soldiers, Irregular War, Violence and Restraint in the Second Intifada, which was recently published by Cornell University Press. Devorah, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So tell us about the book. What motivated it, and what do you think the major contribution is going to be?
4: So On some level, I set out to explore a question that many before me have been interested in, which is what explains the participation of individuals in violence. But whereas much of the exploration of this question in the past in social psychology or philosophy or elsewhere dealt with ordinary people, I was particularly interested in the military setting. Um, And typically in the political science literature that analyzes patterns of violence against civilians in conflict, soldiers are treated in homogenous terms so some of this literature focuses on the incentives of elites for using violence and that essentially assumes that soldiers simply mirror elite interests rather than having their own agency uh, whereas other work treats soldiers as thugs that will intend to inflict violence wholesale unless the institution restrains them and what i observed as a starting point was variation in participation so Some soldiers comply with the violence that's expected from them. Others exceed that violence, produce even more, um, but also soldiers that shirk violence or resist it. And I wanted to first document and then examine the sources of this variation. So I wanted to understand the processes through which such violence is ultimately produced at the level of the regular rank and file. And equally as important, I wanted to understand the limits of these processes when and why they falter or fail and result in actually the non-production of violence. So bottom line, I think the main contribution of this book is that focusing on the case of Israel and the second Intifada, it takes us inside military units, a site that's typically off limits to most of us, we don't know or we don't wanna know what happens there. Um, And it helps us understand the processes that shape soldier participation in violence and then more broadly the dynamics of violence and restraint and conflict.
0: Maybe we could start uh, with that because uh, when you try and define violence, uh, one of the things which is interesting about the book is when you disaggregate it and start looking at the way that uh, the way we count violence kind of systematically undercounts it or underreports what's actually going on. So tell us a little bit about how you approach this question of what, what is violence, what is restraint?
4: So first, when I define violence, I chose to define it uh, very broadly. Um, Some studies of conflict uh, define violence to mean lethal violence, often because that's uh, considered easier to measure, although we know there are also many problems with measuring lethal violence. Um, And for me and for others uh, as well that that I cite in the book, um, that really gives us a skewed picture of what is actually going on. In the Second Intifada, a lot of the violence was actually non-lethal, a lot of the violence that might be considered most egregious, um, from you know very strict restrictions on movement to uh, ambushes in people's homes, right? These are, are incidents of violence that essentially would not be counted using just a lethal definition. So I adopt the definition of violence from the World Health Organization that really looks at any sort of um, deprivation or force used against others, uh, whether lethal or non-lethal.
0: So then how do you go about uh, getting data on this? How do you measure it?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, There are no uh, quantitative indicators of this kind of violence, which is another uh, obstacle to studying it. So I went the qualitative route for much of this uh, book And I learned about violence from interviews, in-depth interviews, from a lot of analysis of text, whether media or NGOs, Um, you know, in in the Israeli-Palestinian context, there's so many NGOs that document various forms of violence, so I learned the repertoire of uh, the IDF in terms of dealing with the second Intifada, I will say that what my book cannot tell us is the prevalence of practices because I don't have the tools to sort of statistically count you know how or, many times does this practice used. but it can, I hope, shed light on the processes that produce uh, various forms of violence or participation in those forms.
0: And then you and so you said you you were mostly using um, interviews and all of these the NGO reports and all that sort of thing. So you're you're looking at this through the eyes of the actual Israeli soldiers on the ground in these units at, at all le- at all rank levels.
4: Yes, that's exactly right. Um, in the book, I propose a typology of violence from the soldier's perspective um, that looks at essentially the core argument of the book is that soldier participation in violence is determined by uh, organizational control processes. I can talk more about that, but for for the purposes of this question right now, um, these control processes essentially determine whether uh, violence will be perceived as legitimate or not. And those perceptions are soldier perceptions. They don't mean that um, you know this or that form of violence is more or less harmful or more or less legal. It attempts to reconstruct for us from, as you say, the soldier's perspective, different kinds of violence so that we can understand the dynamics of participation.
0: So something might be contrary to international law but be seen as legitimate by the soldiers who are fighting.
4: Yes, yes. Um, I try, exactly, I try to not use. So a lot of the literature, for instance, some, you know, it talks about violence against civilians um, because violence against civilians is mm-hmm. uh, rooted in the principle of distinction that says civilians should be protected and uh, combatants do not have protection. But we know that even in international law, those distinctions are often very complicated in practice. So what happens when a civilian is participating in hostilities, for instance? And, and so rather than sort of get at these uh, intricacies of the law, I try to understand how um, these distinctions are perceived on the ground because soldiers yeah. do make distinctions. They don't view violence as the same. Um, so I try to understand how they see it rather than assume that they see it, you know, in the way that maybe some other international body sees it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a, at a passage in your book right now that, that, I had, that I had highlighted because it was so striking. You had interviewed uh, a former infantryman and he said, if you take out your gun and shoot someone because he threatened you, that's fine. He'll die and that's great, but hit him with a rifle butt, that's strictly forbidden.
4: Right, that's exactly right. And you notice that soldiers might be more reluctant about participating in some forms of violence, um, and much, and you know, that we might see as less severe and yet very enthusiastic about participating in other forms of violence. Um, and I tried to understand why. So, for instance, blowing up a house is something that people expressed a lot of enthusiasm towards, but um, standing at a checkpoint. Was perceived as something that was much more difficult, and people were more likely to shirk. So, what explains that, or what explains mm-hmm. um, the 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 legitimacy of killing versus the illegitimacy of of physical abuse, right, of hitting someone, as you just said?
0: Yeah. So, b- before we get into some of the, the the details of of the findings of the book, I wanted to take a step back. Um, I, I was I, I really liked that your book. Uh, foregrounded questions of kind of the ethics and the practicality of doing this kind of research, and 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 what it meant to go and interview these soldiers about uh, you know these things they were doing when they were in the occupied territories, and um, and 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 how you actually. Very self consciously grappled with the issues involved in this kind of research. So, and, and I, personally, I think that all uh, books uh, and, 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 and academic research on this kind of topic should have that kind of very explicit, direct engagement with it. So, tell us how you how, how did you uh, deal with those kinds of questions and then what is the how does the book handle it?
4: Thank you. So. I think as anybody who studies conflict zones knows, um, these topics are very, very fraught, very difficult. Um, they invoke a lot of emotion, pain, suffering, and also a lot of politics, right? Uh, the, the attempts to justify or to condemn or to make sure that your narrative of the conflict is the one that survives as, as the, the correct one. Um, so it's complicated, to say the least, right? It's not something that you just go and talk to someone about and then, you know analyze the interview. So it was very important to me to put front and center the mechanics of how I went about doing this. And it was something that I learned in the field as I went along. So I didn't really know initially how to talk to people about violence. I think it's something that's not obvious at all if you want to do it in a way that um, on the one hand, uh, produces, you know, of correct and valid data, but on the other hand, uh, respects the boundaries of the people that you're talking to, um, is produced ethically. So uh, these dilemmas that I grappled with, I I share in the second chapter in the hopes that they're also helpful to other people who uh, work with uh, what I call, or and and others have also called violence workers, people whose job it is essentially to exercise violence. And, And we know that there are industries in which that's people's jobs.
0: So let's, let's talk about uh, the violence then. Uh, you, you identified three different types of violence, uh, the strategic, opportunistic, and entrepreneurial. So tell us, what, what do you mean by the, these concepts and how do these different types of violence uh, manifest?
4: Okay, so um, my argument is that the military, uh, or, or let me put it another way, the dynamics of participation are shaped Um, by organizational control processes in the military. Um, And by that, I mean any mechanism that is designed to align soldier behavior with military interests. Uh, I focus in particular on social control mechanisms. So many people tend to associate militaries with strict formal mechanisms of control like uh, discipline and punishment. But what I find is actually most powerful are means of social control, Mm -hmm. Um, like socialization, persuasion, the creation of a shared culture. Um, And what these types of mechanisms are meant to do is not just to shape soldier interests, but to shape their identities so that they act in the best interest of the military, not just because it reflects their incentives, but because they assume the identity of a soldier. So their beliefs, their norms, their identities align with that of the organization. And this process, I argue, consists of two parts. In the training phase, which typically takes many months, the military instills a set of norms among combatants that constructs organizationally useful violence, and that's what I call strategic violence, as normative and legitimate, and in fact, is not violence at all, right? As security, defense, or protection, um, while constructing as uh, sorry, while constructing organizationally useless violence as deviant. So essentially, it takes uh, pre-existing normative frameworks that soldiers come in with regarding the use of violence. And of course, these will vary among individuals. And through these intense processes, it changes them, inculcating a new normative framework. And ultimately, I argue that this process, again, from the soldier's perspective, creates a continuum of violence, where at one end is violence that is utterly useless to the organization or opportunistic violence, at the other violence that is utterly useful, um, strategic violence. And then at the baseline, meaning once soldiers have emerged from training, assuming that the military was effective in control processes, I expect soldier participation to be much higher at the end of the spectrum that is useful to the organization. So at the strategic end and much lower at the useless end, the opportunistic end, because that's how human behavior typically works, right? There's more participation in normative behavior than in deviant behavior. But the second part of the process after training is deployment. And here I expect, for a variety of reasons that I lay out in the book, that soldiers will increasingly become misaligned with military interests, meaning we'll see more participation in opportunistic violence, more shirking from strategic violence, And we'll also um, increasingly see violent practices emerge that are of uncertain utility to the organization. So this is uh, what soldiers, by the way, not just in Israel, I've heard this from other places, they call it the gray area, right? It's sort of unclear to what extent this uh, helps the organization. Um, Soldiers think it does, but the military doesn't necessarily think so. Uh, this is what I call entrepreneurial violence. And at this stage, it falls to junior commanders. So these are the NCOs or the officers at the lower levels to realign soldiers with military interests and their ability to do so will determine patterns of participation during deployment. So these various categories of violence reflect the degree to which violence uh, reflects organizational interests and um, participation in those categories will depend on patterns of organizational control. So there's, a, there's a,
0: obviously a couple of layers uh, there um, and maybe walk through them one at a time. So the first is the, the socialization process, which I think this is familiar to um, you know, people who study uh, military culture and the process of training and everything, but it was, it was quite striking um, the, the attitudes of many of the younger soldiers as they come out of that training.
4: Yes. Um, It's interesting. I think it's true that military sociology and work on, you know, military culture often looks at this training period as um, sort of a quintessential form of complete socialization, uh, talking about how it creates cohesion and how it creates effectiveness. But what I often find is missing from those accounts is what that means for violence. Mm -hmm. So that period doesn't just Um, create, you know, a shared culture. It also creates shared attitudes about violence. And I think that that tends to be um, missing from this literature. And it creates an enthusiasm for essentially using violence. This is what these people are trained to do. This is what they came to do. And if, if we want them out there, or, you know, not we, but if the military wants them out there, putting their lives on the line, they need to make them not just Agree, but uh, enthusiastic to participate Uh, in the Israeli military. The term that's used is uh, is action, which is the Hebrew version, I guess, of action, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This Mm -hmm. desire to see combat, but this is not unique to the IDF. So uh, I have a chapter that looks a little bit at the US military. And this is something really that any military needs to do. It's to get cadets enthusiastic about what's essentially participation in violence.
0: And, and what you see is that, um, or at least what you show in the book, is that in those kind of, I guess we would call them kinetic actions, you know, going into Nablus or whatever, um, then they they rarely question that, even when there's extreme violence, but it's the, it's when they're in the checkpoints and in this kind of static policing function that the socialization starts to break down a little bit.
4: That's right, the military prepares them for, um, uh, Janowitz called it the warrior ethos, right? The military prepares them to be warriors to charge forward and it sort of renders the damage of that, certainly to victims, but also to soldiers, it renders that invisible um, and creates a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of compliance. But when soldiers find themselves uh, in in this case, um, when soldiers found themselves actually doing a lot of policing Standing at checkpoints um, and sort of glorious activity without a lot of risk, uh, without a lot of um, concrete achievements, then uh, their identification with the mission declines. And that can lead to shirking. And it can also lead to more violence that serves individual interests. Because what happens is that soldiers are starting to lose this identification with the military. So that can lead to shirking, but it can also lead to violence that serves themselves rather than military goals.
0: And You, you talk a lot uh, about how the soldiers at the checkpoints, they start saying, why are we here? What, why, you know, what is the purpose of all of this and the constantly shifting regulations and rules creating all of this confusion?
4: Right. Um, it requires
0: interpretation, which they're not like really trained to do.
4: They're not really trained to do and the people who get stuck with, uh, with explaining this are the junior commanders. Um, because in this kind of warfare, uh, what we call counterinsurgency warfare, though that term means different things to different people, but irregular warfare, um, soldiers typically operate in small groups with only a junior commander with them, sometimes an officer, often a NCO, a squad leader, and they're really the representative of the military on the ground, and so faced with Soldiers who are uh, declining in identification and in compliance, what do they do? And I show in the book that they can do a few things. Um, they can try to reinstill in soldiers that enthusiasm. And the way to do that is to try to instill a military logic on what's essentially a policing task. Right. So, how do you make soldiers look at a checkpoint as, as war, as a, you know something that, that a, a warrior ethos? That's sort of one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is saying, okay, yeah, this job sucks, but you know, we have to do what we're told and sort of fall back on the formal hierarchy, which is always um, a less effective means of inducing compliance. And in other cases, I showed that commanders simply fail. They're not successful in, in realigning soldiers with military goals. And that's when we see um, more opportunistic violence and more shirking from strategic violence.
0: And so, and you also, I think, really do show that leadership matters, that it's not just the formal structures um, and it's not just the rules that are written down, but individual commanders make a big difference.
4: Yes, they make a very big difference. um, And they occupy a really challenging role because, on the one hand, they are invested with institutional authority. So they can exercise authority. And I had many people I interviewed tell me that ultimately, if your commander tells you to do you know, X or not do Y, then you have to do it or you're out of there. So on the one hand, they have authority. But on the other hand, there's so many uh, obstacles to exercising that authority. The fact that they're certainly in the Israeli military, they're very young. They live in the same quarters with their soldiers. They often um, find it just challenging to uh, to take an opposite uh, perspective. So, um, so even though they sort of theoretically have the ability to enforce authority in practice, they often do not. So then, how
0: does this then play out? Then this balance between the strategic, opportunistic, entrepreneurial. Um, did you see trends um, that uh, that kind of informed how you how you re- how you kind of concluded the analysis?
4: Yes. So what I saw is that um, it's really a question of organizational control. So when there's strong control, we will see, um, or I saw increased participation in strategic violence, very little participation in opportunistic violence, and sort of more participation in entrepreneurial violence. That one that one sort of depends. Um, but certainly strong control will be a lot of strategic and a little bit of opportunistic and then the opposite is also true. So weak control will see shirking from strategic violence and um, more participation in opportunistic violence. And this entrepreneurial violence, the mid category, we really see um, when there's not a strong or weak control, but essentially the absence of control um, when the military is ambiguous about what exactly it wants or doesn't want, and that's when we see entrepreneurial practices flourishing. So I'll just say that the way I conceive of this is different from uh, other work that looks at when will we see more violence, right, or when will we see less, because what I show is that um, it really depends on what kind of violence. So some of the work um, on violence against civilians will say, well, violence is the result of Lack of discipline. So if we have more discipline, soldiers will be restrained, you know, more restrained and less violent. And I show that, yes, they'll probably commit less opportunistic violence. However, they'll comply with strategic violence a lot more. And if the the military's orders are very violent, then um, increased discipline will not lead to less violence, right? Uh, I'll just give a quick example. Um, The military at one point after the Second Intifada, after all these years of struggles at the checkpoints for soldiers, it gradually transferred command of checkpoints from the military to um, private contractors, right? It it outsourced um, the, the command of many checkpoints. And some you know some of the reactions to that were that this actually in in many cases created a much more difficult problem from the civilian perspective because these folks were highly disciplined and there was no getting around them right if they said no it was a no whereas soldiers um, it kind of depended you could get a really awful guy on one day but you can get kind of a a nice guy or maybe just a wimp on another day. And there was more room for negotiation. So bottom line, more discipline um, doesn't necessarily mean more restraint. It just means that the kind of violence that soldiers will carry out will be more aligned with military interests. So
0: at, at the end of the book, you, you take a comparative uh, perspective. And, and I was actually thinking about that with your concept, your uh, category of entrepreneurial violence. You know, from on the U.S. side in counterinsurgency in Iraq, uh, there was a lot of valorization of the strategic corporal of the you know, these guys who went in and figured out how to get things done in uh, and win hearts and minds and adapt to the local context without as much of the top down direction. And it was more seen as a as as a good and important part of counterinsurgency. Um, And so how does that compare to what you were observing in the Israeli context?
4: So I actually found a lot of parallels um, between these cases and specifically regarding uh, what I call entrepreneurial behavior, uh, entrepreneurial violence. Entrepreneurial violence requires entrepreneurs, right? Um, And when you're in an industry that deals in violence, your entrepreneurship will be to devise violent practices that are uh, helpful in achieving the organizational mission. So um, there's a problem here we can identify insurgents or the insurgency is escalating or whatever it is, what do we do now? Um, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial officers, uh, strong, you know, aggressive people who are trying to get ahead in the military will come up with practices that are designed to do this. And at the organizational level, there's often an um, incentive to remain ambiguous about what these practices can be and what their limits are. And I have um, and I and I give in that chapter an example of a a US colonel who was highly regarded for his achievements in Iraq, but he was also um, very entrepreneurial in the ways that I describe when I talk about the -hmm. the, uh, entrepreneurial violence. So designing practices that are meant to quell the insurgency. Uh, Ultimately, this Um, Leads to a case in which two soldiers, uh, or sorry, in which a team of soldiers pushes two men into the water because they're out uh, violating curfew. And one of these men dies. um, And the investigation leads to this colonel who was, uh, you know, a decorated warrior and he ends up finding himself outside the military because uh, these practices became ultimately uh, more costly than their benefits. So this entrepreneurial violence, on the one hand, it promises reward if the practices turn out to be uh, something that actually helps the military. And I give examples in the book about practices that started out as entrepreneurial practices, but were ultimately uh, adopted by the IDF as part of their strategic repertoire. So that's the, the promise. Um, but in the case where uh, practice ends up failing, then the organization can, dis- can um, distance themselves, right? Can mm-hmm. resort to this plausible deniability and the person who pays the price for these practices uh, is the entrepreneur.
0: I guess last question then, Um, you know, now that this book is out and you've kind of completed this research program, what do you think like the broader implications are for the study of counterinsurgency, military sociology and the like? What do you hope that people take away from your
4: book? Um, That's a really good question. I would say two things. Um, First, I would hope that people take the issue of uh, agency seriously, Um, soldier agency. Mm -hmm. The fact that uh, the book actually opens with a quote from from a movie, um, uh, Korengal uh, film, a documentary film about uh, Afghanistan in which a soldier interviewed says, everyone tells you, you did what you had to do. And I just hate that comment. You did what you had to do because I didn't have to do any of it that's the hardest thing to deal with I didn't have to do shit um, and I you know so for me I would want both analysts and sort of you know audiences to, to take into account this issue of agency and that soldiers can and do make decisions um, obviously under very difficult circumstances right obviously under very challenging conditions um, so so that would be one thing I would want people to take from it um, I guess the other would be to, um, maybe to disaggregate a little yeah. more when we think about violence and to uh, complicate our categories a little bit more. Uh, and we you know, we gave a lot of examples in this conversation as to ways in which we could do that.
0: Well, great. We've been speaking with a Devorah Manikin of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem about her new book, Regular Soldiers, Irregular War, Violence and Restraint in the Second Intifada of Cornell University Press. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.